0: some division in the house republican caucus on the david bird situation welcome to grand divisions this is the week of march 25th i'm joel ebert
1: and i'm natalie allison A lot has happened
0: related to David Byrd in recent weeks, that he is the uh, Republican lawmaker, of course, who is facing allegations from a year ago uh, from three women who said uh, in the 1980s he sexually assaulted uh, them in various ways. Uh, So with that, the Tennessean decided to survey the House Republican lawmakers to see if they would want to offer any insights uh, related to either their support for for David Byrd, their support for or or disapproval of House Speaker Glenn Cassidy's decision to appoint Byrd as a subcommittee chairman. Uh and so we kind of uh you know had some mixed results as a result of this survey. Uh Natalie, give give folks a little bit of background of what went into our effort on the survey.
1: I think it's worth noting for some for some context here that uh the reason the Tennessee and decided to undertake this attempt at a survey is because it does seem that, um, caucus members may not be free to talk about the bird situation that, uh, Glen certainly has put his support behind David bird. Um, Maybe everyone else doesn't feel the same way, that he should have been made a committee chairman just based on, you know, some of the conversations we've had uh, with people in the caucus and just, you know, people around the building talking about how uh, the Speaker's office has tried to clamp down on some of this dissension, which is something we've covered before, uh, not just on the bird situation, but um, other areas of possible conflict in the legislature among the House Republicans. So we we set out this past week. Uh, five reporters were put on this story, this exercise, if you will. Um, it was it was Joel, it was me, Anita Wadwani, Adam Tamborin, and Mike Riker, and uh, we we each split up and and were tasked with with approaching lawmakers or calling them or going to their office to try to talk to them, uh, about how they think the situation is being handled.
0: And so we, uh, that's uh, approximately 73 people in the caucus. Of course, we didn't need to get a comment from David Byrd and, uh, Glenn Cassidy himself because we know where they stand on this issue. Um, but you know, quickly we found out, uh, we, we did this survey last Wednesday. Um, we quickly found out that there was an effort to kind of stop what we were doing in the midst of it. Which we expected. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Which is why
1: we had five reporters to try to get us far as we could before they they put it into it.
0: Yeah. So at one point um, we had been interviewing some folks and, and were successful and we were asking people to speak both on the record and if they didn't feel comfortable to speak on background, which for those of you that may not know, just gives you an opportunity to uh, the lawmaker or the subject of the interview to speak freely without having their name associated with it. Several members were willing to actually speak on background and not on the record. Uh, of the on the record, uh, comments though, one of them was was fairly interesting. Who was that?
1: Yeah, it was pretty surprising. So, Micah Van Haas, he is he's one of the Cassidy's chairmen, who's one of the what forty two who were appointed. Which means that you know, in a lot of ways, he he is loyal to the speaker. Uh, he spoke on the record saying while he does support Cassidy's decision to appoint David Byrd as a subcommittee chairman. Again, he's the chairman of the Education Administration Subcommittee. Byrd was a former teacher, principal, high school basketball coach. The women who have accused him of sexually assaulting them said that he did so while they were um, teenagers playing on his high school basketball team. So anyway, Micah Van Hust said he he supported Cassida. He supported Bird. didn't think Byrd needed to resign. Uh, but when he was asked whether there should be some kind of investigation into the allegations against Bird, surprisingly, uh, he said yes. He said, has there not been one? Yeah, there should be one if there hasn't been one.
0: Definitely an interesting response. Some of the people that talked to us, though, were on background. Uh, give us a smattering of what those comments were. Yeah,
1: so we have, uh, in our story, we have quotes from a few different people who spoke to us on background. Uh, I can read a few of those quotes, one of which was from a, a house uh, GOP member who said, appointing someone to chair a committee with this issue hanging over their head should not happen. Um, He went on to say uh, about whether he believed the women. I don't want to believe this, but listening to the tapes and hearing the women talk, there's something there. And he says... I don't see this as politically motivated at all, which has been an argument that you know some within the caucus or just Republicans in general have made about these women saying you know, this is some kind of attack by Democrats to bring down David Byrd.
0: Any other notable responses?
1: Yeah. Uh, asked Asking another member about whether uh, this member believed the women. The, the member said, I believe the one he talked to. Who wouldn't be inclined to believe that? And he was referring to Christy Rice, who... Uh, recorded a phone call last year she had with David Bird in which she um, she's confronting him basically on the phone about what she said he did to her when she was 15 and he's apologizing and he's saying he asked for forgiveness from her from God you know this is something that haunts him Um, he doesn't specifically say what he's asking for forgiveness for um, which is also you know something that has raised a lot of questions of
0: course we would be remiss to note uh, there were several members that we talked to who expressed support for both David Byrd and for the speaker's decision to appoint him as chairman we also uh heard many people say, I don't have a comment, go to the speaker's office, go to house leadership. Uh, that was sort of the token line from, yeah. I think it was about 11 members, uh, that we heard from who said that and, and, and sort of the, 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 backstory on that is there were, there was an active effort in the middle of our interviews to actually tell lawmakers and their assistants do not talk to the media about this. Yeah. We, um, we
1: saw staffers, you we know, making staffers, the rounds, trying to spread the word to, to members to not talk to us.
0: There was a text message sent out by, uh, uh house Republican caucus chairman Cameron Sexton warning members directly to members do not talk to these folks uh they are asking about the David Bird situation refer
1: uh, them to the press office if they do approach you
0: yeah and so again uh you know not to harp a belabor on the point but the idea was essentially this is yet another form of uh the speaker and republican leadership feeling like they need to to push back on members uh at least being open and and freely discussing things that normally they would be able to talk about with members of the media. Um, I had at least one staffer say that you know their lawmaker would not be told who or who they who they could or could not talk to, and and I, I don't think that that person is alone. I mean I do think uh, when it comes to trying to tamp down on you know a member's free speech, um, uh, they probably don't like that.
1: And and the reason we we had to speak on background with with several of these people who are quoted in the story is is because they knew they would be in big trouble if their name appeared in a story with an opinion that, you know, wasn't favorable about how the speakers handled this.
0: Last week, Governor Lee's education savings account legislation and charter authorizer legislation were both taken up in committee. Uh, they had serious discussion in, in both cases, uh, but ultimately passed uh, both uh, the, the the committees that they were under consideration. Natalie, start with the charter, uh, uh, you know, authorizer. Essentially, what was kind of the the gist of what happened?
1: Well, I'll, I'm going to uh, start this by saying our education reporters, Jason Gonzalez, uh, Amelia farrell nicely. They are they're the ones taking the lead on this story, but but we can talk a little bit about it. Uh, so the charter author- authorization bill, it actually was amended the night before it went through the House Education Committee. So that was also kind of a, a sticking point for some of these legislators, saying we don't we aren't even really familiar with this amendment. Um, when it came through the House Education Committee on Wednesday. But essentially what the amended version does is it creates this commission. It's a nine-member commission uh, that would review uh, applications for charter schools that are denied in their local school districts. Um, and it, it basically, you know, paves the way for for more charter schools to be able to open um, more easily. So it, it made it out of the committee – On a vote of thirteen to nine, which is pretty close
0: out of committee. I mean, you at one point in the House committee, you had the Speaker standing there whipping votes. Yes, he's
1: standing, kind of like at one point standing on the side, then walk, kind of pacing, walking back and forth on the side. They were bringing members members. into the
0: hallway at one point.
1: Um, And you know, there obviously were multiple Republicans who who voted against this vote. Someone called for a roll call vote, uh, so they each you know had to to go down the list and say which way they were on it. Um, And it it squeaked by and it, it got through the Senate education committee a lot easier. It was, it was unanimous
0: the governor immediately after his his uh, his staff essentially you know were, were kind of hailing this uh you know early hurdle that they passed they sent out a press release uh, praising the early momentum uh, but again the, at one point we saw members of the the governor's communication staff outside the House committee we saw uh, the speaker not every day do you see e- either one of those no. parties involved in the legislative minutia process that is uh, a committee?
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's we could tell they thought it was going to be close. I don't know if they realized how close it was going to be. I'm not sure who they thought you know would or wouldn't budge at the last minute. Um, But but it did make it out. As did uh, the governor's ESA bill that was. in the in an education subcommittee it was in the curriculum testing and innovation subcommittee uh, and it did make it out of that as well but with some pushback again from from GOP lawmakers having questions about some of the provisions of this bill and and
0: there were several members of the committee who essentially said there's a lot unknown about this bill and we need to clarify some some aspects at one point uh, you know you heard from supporters of this bill uh including representative Mark White who acknowledged he he really likes the legislation but there is a lot unknown still uh who you know essentially they they, they kind of held their breath and right. still cast a vote in favor of this bill to send it to uh, another committee yeah
1: but but among the the Republicans who expressed concerns or doubts or questions uh there was there's Tom Leatherwood there was right. Kevin Vaughn um Charlie Baum he's you know he's 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 another Republican lawmaker, and they they had questions about why aren't these children necessarily going to have to take all the same standardized tests or um, other tests like ACT. Uh, there was questions I I think you were listening in about mm-hmm. transportation. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: yeah, you I mean, in this? Uh, there was one portion of it where the discussion centered on how uh, these funds could be used to allow people to t- go to and from schools, uh, and they essentially the the uh, administration admitted the Department of Education actually admitted that, um, uh, right now the system allows you to get, a uh, take a commercial vehicle to it. And I noted on Twitter, uh, and quickly got pushback from the governor's office, uh, that you, that means you could essentially pay for a limousine if you wanted to, because it's a commercial vehicle just as is a, uh, a school bus or, uh, you know, maybe even an Uber driver.
1: But can you, can you actually pay for a limousine under this this bill,
0: the current draft of it. And my understanding is that you can. Uh, I think that that could be, you know, uh, fixed in the future, but it, it could we be shall cheaper
1: see. than running a bus. I don't know.
0: Might be, might be. <laughs> Either way, uh, not a, a, a time for touchdowns yet for the governor's office, but they clearly are excited to see that these two key pieces of legislation have made it through the uh, early hurdles. In other news, the uh, Senate approved of a bill that was controversial, at least in, in Nashville and a couple of the major big cities, uh, related to the Community Oversight Board. Uh, Natalie, what's what's the status of that?
1: So it's passed both the House and the Senate, but the, the two versions of the bill are a little bit different. Uh, the House passed a version in which... These community oversight boards, these civilian-led police review boards uh, would have no opportunity to to obtain a subpoena as part of their investigation into uh, police misconduct. Whereas the Senate added an amendment to this bill when it was in the committee process that does allow a way for these boards to obtain a subpoena. Basically, an independent investigator they have could petition a judge to obtain one. Uh, so at this point, they're kind of at an impasse. They're going to have to work out this bill. We we spoke to the lieutenant governor about it this past week, saying what's going to happen. Uh, he said, and and I think it was also Mike Bell, who was in that uh, media veil um, said that they think that they're going to be able to find some kind of middle ground, but they won't say what that is.
0: A couple of other stories to to note this week. Uh, one that I did on on essentially just requesting state payroll data. Uh, found that the governor is you know taking a salary uh, it, it's not damning information but compared to the previous uh, governors uh, at least the last two governors uh, Haslam and, and Bredesen um, that's a little bit of a change we also found that there were several other curious hires including um, James Amundsen uh, who is a former campaign manager for for expelled uh, former lawmaker Jeremy Durham uh, and a former AF lobbyist. He now works for state government. We also found that Julie Hanna, who uh, ran for Williamson County Recorder of Deeds and, and lost despite spending a whole lot of money, also a supporter of Jeremy Durham, is now working for state government, found several other interesting employees uh, that are now on the payroll and and some amounts that they're making. If you haven't checked it out, feel free to look uh, on our uh, website. And Nettle, you had another one that is worth highlighting. Uh, kind of a curious find on this this comment from Mary Mancini uh recently what what yeah, was that well
1: uh you know we we just did a story highlighting uh potentially a controversial remark um
0: mancini of course being the, the chairman of or yes, uh, the
1: chairman of the the Tennessee Democratic Party um we had you know we found a couple recordings of her at recent uh local around the state county Democratic Party events where she was speaking uh Using this line that Tennessee is a racist state, when when they're ha- when these groups were having conversations about why some of their candidates, uh, such as you know people of color or um, millennials or members of the LGBT community, uh, weren't gaining traction among people in their districts and. Uh, so, you know, we talked to her about it initially in the interview. Uh, she she didn't back down from that comment, but later followed up with a statement in which she apologized um, for for her choice of wording. Uh, this does come several months after we did a similar story about a freshman representative from Memphis, Lyndon Lamar, making similar comments in which Mary Mancini, uh, at the time, defended London Lamar's sentiment, but said that it was a mistake for her to have said that. Uh, so we did this story. It actually led to David Plaza's, he's our opinion and engagement editor, writing um, his own column saying basically that this was a gift to Republicans, that Mary... Andy Mancini Holt loved that. it.
0: He said on Twitter, Mancini for life, essentially.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and you know, the, the Republican Party, the state Republican Party jumped all over it. The next day they issued a statement uh, saying, you know, her... Her choice of of words shouldn't be part of the dialogue here, and and that attitude wasn't welcome. Um, and and David Plazas even said in his his column, he I mean he made a he he made a statement that if if the Democrats continue to have a super minority in the state, they can thank Mancini, which is a pretty strong statement. Uh, but, but Mary Mancini has said, you know, she is committed to continuing a civil respectful dialogue, um, about some of these issues that are facing the state. And, and I think it's also noteworthy that we asked, uh, other members of, uh, other Democrats in the legislature at a weekly press avail on Thursday, whether they agreed with her statements, um, Only one person would answer. Uh, Only Ramesh Ackberry, she's a senator from Memphis, would answer. The others stood up there and refused to say anything. Uh, I think there was Mike Stewart was up there and Karen Camper and Bo Mitchell, uh, maybe a couple others. But none of them would offer perspective on it.
0: And finally, uh, just to highlight what is happening on the healthcare side of things in the legislature, we did a sit down interview with Michelle Johnson of the Tennessee Justice Center uh, really to talk about one specific issue, which uh, you'll hear she considers the top issue in the legislature this year. Joining me today on the podcast is Michelle Johnson, Executive Director of the Tennessee Justice Center. Uh, We're going to dive into a brief conversation about uh, the 10-care block grant idea that has come up this session in the legislature. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Michelle. Thanks for having me. So just kind of give listeners an overview if you're not familiar with this concept of essentially what Republicans are trying to do with this block grant bill
2: yeah so nationally, Republicans have pushed block grants for a long time because they want to lower the costs that the nation is paying for health care. And Medicaid is an entitlement. So it basically means if our citizens need health care, the federal government through Medicaid is partnering to pay for um, a large part of that. So, um, so basically, the National Republican Party has pushed block grants for a long time to lower their cost, um, and basically to hand off the political accountability uh, for a, a Medicaid program that's underfunded to the state to the state leaders. In our state, about half the kids in the state are covered by Medicaid. About two thirds of seniors in nursing homes are covered by Medicaid. So, uh, it's a huge program that impacts our state in. Lots and lots of ways. Uh, we are the only state that are pushing to get uh, a block grant a- as a state. Um, we're pushing um, to basically cap ourselves so that we will get um, uh, limited money for these for these this important program. Well, and
0: right now the state gets what about seven billion dollars? A little over that.
2: About seven billion dollars a year, and that um, money again it funds Department of Children's services it funds uh, parts of Department of Education, Department of Mental Health that um it, it's twenty five cents of every dollar is uh federal Medicaid money in in our state in a state that is as poor as ours this is as I say on the on the bleeding edge of all things dumb. No other state has done this. We don't want to do it uh, if we want if we don't want to blow up the Tennessee budget
0: one of the concerns that I've heard from your organization is essentially that um, right now the current system provides for flexibility so if there is an in a, a state of emergency if there's uh, a health crisis uh, in the middle of the budget year uh, all of a sudden we need to spend you know uh, ten thousand more dollars or 20 million more dollars uh, to, to handle this crisis that the federal government does provide a match but under a block grant idea, that's not going to happen right. That's
2: right. So that's what you see in Puerto Rico, uh, which is the only place even similar to having a block grant because of their unique status is they they had capped the amount of money the federal government would help this Puerto Rico with. And so that means um basically the state, the territory, Puerto Rico is on the hook um after after the devastation that hit them. And so we don't we can't be like that in a state that doesn't have a, an income tax. We have to have the federal government as a partner in making sure that uh, if there's an epidemic or some sort of natural disaster, that the federal government will be there with us to make sure that our kids and our seniors get the care they need.
0: So in in your mind, again, this system in the outset is what they're arguing is this is supposed to provide flexibility, but it sounds like in reality what it could do is put Tennessee taxpayers more on the hook uh, in times of uncertainty or even not.
2: Absolutely. It puts, it puts Tennessee taxpayers on the hook and it, it impacts everybody's health care because, unfortunately, the health care system is such that um, if you have a health care system that's wobbly, like the hospitals, now 12 hospitals have closed, privately insured people also then... Can't go to those hospitals because they've closed because of policy decisions. Um, so neonatal intensive care units are highly funded by uh, Medicaid dollars. Burn units; um, these are these are vitally important protections and um, systems that happen because because of this federal flow of Medicaid funding. Um, and and nursing home nursing home regulations, basically quality of care standards in nursing homes, are completely. For everyone, privately insured and, and publicly insured are, are driven by these Medicaid regulations. The go- the state keeps saying, we want to have flexibility. Well, there's all sorts of opportunity for flexibility. We've had a waiver here for 25 years. Every other state is finding ways to find flexibility without without having a block grant. Nobody else, in, no state leader is saying we want a block grant. Why? Because it's absolutely shooting yourself in the foot one toe at a time. And
0: yet we have multiple state leaders saying they're open to this idea here, right?
2: It's it's flying through the legislature, and they don't seem to understand the impact on the budget. They don't really even understand the impact on the, on the quality of care for children and seniors. They just understand the buzzword that they've heard at national conferences, and the fact is... Uh, for the national r- leaders, it makes sense, but for state leaders, it's it's devastating for the Tennessee. Tennessee budget.
0: This is my last question for you, but uh, right now the legislation as written is essentially just directing the governor to have a conversation. Right? It's it, it in their in the backers' minds that this does not require us to do this, but it just says Governor Bill Lee uh, meet with you know feds and and propose an idea and see if we can work something out.
2: The legislation actually requires they submit something within 120 days. It's it's pretty strict. Um, but but
0: is there any? Requirements requirement that says you have to follow this, right? It, it, you can submit something and say, actually, we don't want to go through with this eventually.
2: Yeah. I think the way that the legislation is written is pretty, it, they want to be able to claim that this happened because they pushed it to happen. And so the legislation is not like you may or may not do this, okay. your Bureau or governor. It says you will submit a waiver within 120 days, which is, um, you know i think they would they would want to follow the law um and of course the trump administration is excited to be able to pass off this financial burden to the state of tennessee so um, if they ask for a block grant um there's no question the trump administration will give them one um and they then they are like you know they're free and clear to um, not have the political fallout of kicking seniors out of nursing homes or or turning children away who need, who need healthcare for their future.
0: In the list of legislation that you are watching, where does this rank?
2: Absolutely. Number one. I mean, it it will be devastating for the families we serve. Um, and, um, and also our healthcare infrastructure. As as hospital after hospital closes, this will be another uh, another. It, it is the death knell of the of the, of the Tennessee budget. Um, so, we're really concerned. I think the most important part to look at is the fiscal. The cost to us as taxpayers is laid out in the fiscal review, and um, and that actually says they have no idea what the cost is to us. Which, if that's the case, then we should just pause and figure out. Do we really want to lead the nation um, in this way?
0: Thank you again for coming in, Michelle.
2: You bet. Thanks.
0: And finally, our notebook dump. Last Wednesday, former Governor Bill Haslam met with Vice President Mike Pence in the White House. It was an interesting meeting as the governor is considering running for the U.S. Senate seat that uh, Lamar Alexander is essentially giving up while not running again in 2020. The former governor, meaning Haslam, uh, is still in the midst of making his decision and presumably this meeting was about that potential run
1: a bill that was opposed by LGBTQ advocates has passed the House despite still stalling in the Senate. Uh, that bill would essentially prohibit local or state government entities from discriminating against any kind of business, uh, be it with with tax policy or grants or um, contracts, based on the business's internal policies, such as their, their stance on health care, minimum wage, discrimination, uh, et cetera. Uh, that bill has not yet been taken up in any Senate committees.
0: A bill to allow alcohol sales at non-sporting events in at the University of Tennessee uh, was approved this week and will be sent to the governor's office. This is one of the key pieces of legislation that Knoxville lawmakers and the UT um, leadership were pushing this year and they are hopeful that they can attract new uh, concert goers and, and new uh, you know uh, musicians and others to come to the uh, campus and boost their revenue.
1: Another bill that has cleared both chambers is the Sergeant Daniel Baker Act that essentially removes the Court of Appeals uh, from our state's current death penalty review process when a person is convicted of uh, murder and sentenced to death. uh, Historically, they have been able to appeal both with the Court of Appeals and then the the state Supreme Court, if the Court of Appeals didn't kick it back, uh, this Legislation essentially removes that that first step in the court of appeals, giving them uh, just the the one uh, option to review the sentence.
0: And lastly, yet another David Byrd related development.
1: Yeah. David Byrd's son, J.D. Byrd, who has been a high school sports coach in Jackson uh, at the Jackson Christian School, has resigned after the school says they determined he had had inappropriate communication with the student, although there was no allegation of any inappropriate physical contact. The paper we own in Jackson, the Jackson Sun, uh, has reached out to the Madison County Sheriff's Office, which is where the school is located. They said they are investigating the allegations, but no charges have been filed.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks again for listening to us. As always, you can find us on Tuesdays on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us. Uh, The podcast is produced each week by Erica Whitney and John Garcia. Uh, Check us out on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Thanks again. I'm Joel Eber.
1: And I'm Natalie Allison.
0: See you next week.